Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I am Rivka Rivera. And I am Frank Capello. Rivka, it's strike day. You are officially on strike. How does it feel? I am officially on strike. We're all officially on strike because it is officially solidarity summer, huh? <laughs> yes, I am. I'm definitely on strike. Uh, <laughs> You've been on strike. I've been on strike. No, it's great. I mean, it's not great. It sucks, but it's great because it was like it. We were all ready. Knew it needed to happen, and I think waiting for for the union to finally like declare it mm-hmm. is a relief. Um, and yeah, and the, it's begun. And I think there's a lot of energy out there. I didn't go out today because my foot is still healing. But hopefully next week, uh, my partner went out and joined um, the picket lines. And there's a lot happening. It's really energized in Manhattan right now. And I'm sure in Los Angeles as well. That's awesome. Uh, I hope your foot heals quickly so you could get out there. And just a little bit of additional context for the listener before we get to uh, deep into it. We're recording this on Friday, July 14th. Today, SAG-AFTRA, the union of actors and voiceover actors and performers of all kinds, have officially gone on strike. Uh, yesterday, they failed to reach a contract with the AMPTP, which represents the studios and the networks. A few weeks back, SAG members had authorized a strike if necessary, and today it has officially begun. So now SAG joins the WGA in strike. The first time both unions have been on strike together since 1960. Yeah, and... For people who don't know how big this union is, it's comprised of 160,000 media professionals, 65,000 actors have walked off set. So if anyone doesn't know what a union strike like this would mean, it means anyone who is the same way they said, you know, writers put their pens down, actors who were working on any project had to walk off set. Um, the cast of Oppenheimer, who was in the middle of doing... Um, advertising it was their premiere i believe (laughs) premiere yeah and any promotion is the word i was looking for any kind of promotion walked off so actors are not promoting any projects and that was actually one of the things that i think was really upsetting to um sag leadership that they've addressed is that it felt like it was intentionally being delayed that they were giving them this false sense that there may have been hope in striking a deal or coming having any terms met because they wanted to hold off as long as they could so that these big summer pictures could have their full promotion. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, that makes sense from the, you know, the studio's business perspective. Capitalism. Um, Capitalism. Um, But it's great. It's great to see, especially, you know, like the lead actors in Oppenheimer are in a very different class than most of the rank and file SAG members. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they don't like those actors like, Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, whoever, like they don't have nearly as much to lose as the working class actors, you yes. know, actors, actors who are not very famous and paid millions of dollars for their performances. And I think it's a really um, interesting and important 
moment to talk about sort of like the different classes even inside of a union or a guild like SAG-AFTRA because that's one of the biggest issues. I think there can be this false equivalency that if you're not making a certain amount of money, you're not necessarily working as an actor. But there are a lot of actors who are working and may even be working under SAG contracts. But for people who don't know, you could be making as low as and often a lot of actors are making like $125 a day on a project. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, that's totally okay under under our contract. So there's a lot of actors who are working, who are working actors. But this is part of this moment in time is like you cannot make a living. There used to be a middle class that's totally been destroyed as a result of lots of the stuff that um, – This union is demanding fair compensation for streaming content, protection of Mm -hmm. intellectual property, especially in the face of AI, something I learned, which was wild. But one of the big things that was revealed was that AM, I hate their acronym, MPTP, AMPT. In my head, it's always like AMPT. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It is AMPT, isn't it? Wow. It's kind of like AMPT. Yeah, and like I vision them like all like just drinking Red Bulls and like, you know, wiping their ass with their billions of dollars. No, they probably all, <laughs> all have like blood teenagers, you know, that donate and are keeping them all young. You know, like Bob <laughs> Iger's getting that straight IV of 18-year-old blood. Exactly. So one of the things about the demand for um, protection of intellectual property in that, like in all the face of AI, they've actually already started doing this. There have been people who go in to do extra work who are um, – actors who are getting paid to do extra work but you would get paid for every time that you show up as an extra on set and they they want to pull extras aside and say like we will pay you for this one day on set and then we will own your likeness for the rest of time the rest of time that is so fucked that is like such that's like just and they thought they were gonna slide that in like, and I think that's part of, okay, let's get to um, Fran Drescher's speech. So if you don't know, Fran Drescher is um, president of SAG-AFTRA. She was also the nanny. One of my mom's favorite TV shows. One of my favorite TV shows. I grew I up on the nanny. such a huge crush on Fran Drescher when I was yeah, younger. Mm-hmm. Obsessed. Obsessed. Mm. Um So Fran has been our SAG-AFTRA president for for some time, and I wouldn't say that I ever was impressed, but I found her speech that she made yesterday when they um, addressed the public in a press conference, letting them know we were striking, just so moving. She Mm -hmm. just got it right. It felt, I felt so seen. And I know a lot of us did felt like just this labor movement and everything that we've been asking for and experiencing for a long time was reflected in what she shared. So let's play a little bit of it right now. I cannot believe it, quite frankly, how far apart we are on so many things, how they plead poverty, that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. Shame on them. They stand on the wrong side of history at this very moment. We stand in solidarity, in unprecedented unity. Our union and our sister unions and the unions around the world are standing by us. 
as well as other labor unions. Because at some point, the jig is up. You cannot keep being dwindled and marginalized and disrespected and dishonored. The entire business model has been changed by streaming, digital, AI. This is a moment of history that is a moment of truth. If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in trouble. We are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines and big business. Who cares more about Wall Street than you and your family? Most of Americans don't have more than $500 in, a, in an emergency. I'm riled up. Yeah, she really rose to the occasion in this moment. Um, I was extremely impressed. And it should also, real, just really quick, just for a little bit of additional context, I was, I was skeptical of Fran Drescher because I remember when she came in as SAG president, um, she presided over those uh, contract negotiations a few years ago that ended up uh, having a bunch of actors lose their health insurance. Um, I knew that she was like, I, I believe, the somewhat more conservative candidate of the of the two in that election. So I was really fucking pumped to see her deliver in this moment because this is when this is when the union really needed like some vocal, strong, radical leadership, and she really showed up. And I am so happy to see it. She nailed that monologue. <laughs> She booked it. it. It is very fun to be like all the memes. Have you seen all the memes of like, you know, WGA and then like SAG showing up to the picket line? You're like, it's about to get dramatic. Like <laughs> the actors have been unleashed and they are fucking ready. Like already Tommy was my partner was sending me videos from the picket line today. And you're like, yes. We are ready. Our training is like we have the vocal technique to make some noise. <laughs> but we have I, the voice training. We, we can sus we can sustain our breath for months. Um, uh, but wow. truly, I felt uh, my the energy was right there, and I felt like this is totally a story I'm projecting. But I think I feel like she really had this good faith in negotiating with these with millionaire amped. with the millionaire class mm -hmm. with the billionaire class and there's something very satisfying about seeing like it's like seeing a mom be like see we told you and she like finally gets it and she's like wait mm -hmm. wait a fucking second it's not fair <laughs> you know like and she's freaking out and you're like because i'm not i'm kind of like yeah she's like very surprised the energy is like very like upset which mm -hmm. is kind of useful in this moment because i think people who are not surprised there's a little bit of a like yeah this is the same fucking usual shit this is what we've been saying but she has that energy of like mm -hmm. she says later in the speech i wrote down some of my favorite lines because they're just so good you know she's she's the only one who could sell you have to wake up and smell the coffee <laughs> and then she later says eventually the people break down the gates of versailles and then it's over over it's over damn and like, all right yeah, I mean, and again, I think we've talked about this. I know Jason was talking about this on the podcast for Soldier Story, and it comes up a lot of, like, we. it's about a movement, not leaders. Mm -hmm. And I don't really feel like she's, you know, I really felt in that moment like she's speaking for her union here. It didn't feel like this is a leader. It's almost like she caught up and, like, got yeah, what we've yeah. all been saying and just gave a 10 out of 10 performance. 
I mean, there have been a lot of developments in the last like just week or so, but I, I, I'd imagine a big one that might have like incited her was this deadline article that came out a few days ago about uh, these studio executives who were all speaking on background. They no one gave their name. Um, who basically told the deadline reporter, "Yeah, our strategy now is to uh, starve the writers and actors out. Our like our actual strategy is to." Let this draw out until October, November, December to the point where writers and actors start losing their homes. Mm. And then right before Christmas, we'll come back to the bargaining table because everyone will be so desperate. Like, this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with this level of cruelty. We're dealing with this level of cold, calculated business bullshit. And I mean, like, I remember I read that and I was furious it's just and it's and she's right they're they're all pleading poverty like they can easily pay all of these things they're paying their ceos hundreds of millions of dollars and bob Iger actually came he wasn't even anonymous about it he went he was interviewed by cnbc in sun valley idaho where he's attending this gathering that everyone's calling a summer camp for billionaires and basically claimed that like SAG and WGA's claims, exactly like you're saying, we're going to put the company in an existential crisis. Meanwhile, he makes $27 million a year. Like they're banking, they're so out of touch. And I think they're just really banking on the fact that they're like, people are not smart enough to put it together or something, you know, and I think it's worked for a while. I think we're waking up. I hope so. I felt this way during the pandemic. So I'm starting to get, you know what I mean? There's like these moments, but I'm just like, you fucking kidding me? $27 million a year. People can do that math. It's also like these companies are extraordinarily profitable. And the one thing, the only thing that these CEOs and their boards and their shareholders are concerned about is ultimately the share prices of these companies. And that is kind of the one thing that actually does get affected by whether or not a studio or a network or a streamer caves on these demands. Because, like, the share prices are already tanking, and if they give in on these demands, they will tank even more because, you know, that's how the stupid stock market works. But it's like we're they're basing these decisions on whether these share prices will remain valuable and continue to increase their value for their shareholders has nothing to do with like real world economic. It's only like we're trying to just preserve the stock market. The stock market is not the economy. The stock market is not how people get paid. It's not how people afford to live. Literally like, what is it? Like 80% of all of the stocks are owned by the 10% richest people in the country. It's like the things that they are worried about, they are worried about the things that only affect the shareholders and and essentially like the ruling class in in this scenario. And and. The myth under capitalism is that we can't live without Wall Street success. Like, we can't mm-hmm. live without Wall Street. And therefore, that's the existential crisis for us. But the truth is, I'm pretty sure the truth is, I don't know all the details of it, but, like, we don't know the real, like, streaming is the big mystery, but there's no, like, when they were selling ads on, like, network television, there was real, like, profit being made, like, direct profit being made. Mm-hmm. Most of this is fucking, like, smoke and mirrors on streaming. Yeah, like they're not. No, they don't share those numbers. That's why it's so scary because fucking Wall Street's smoke and mirrors. It's all fucking smoke and mirrors. Yeah. So, and these are real people being like, we need to fucking eat and pay bills, and we're all coming together. Like the solid, we can't underestimate solidarity. 
-hmm. this regard. And I think we have to start as movements thinking beyond just these demands as guilds and unions and thinking about what other ways can collective power be fruitful. Because why are like this is the moment for people who've already laid the groundwork for independent production like we have all of the shit it's not even like they're offering means of production like it's a streaming service for fuck's sake Mm -hmm. if we have the celebrities and the people making like go go off and make your own our own companies whatever that looks like but start experimenting outside of the box as opposed to trying to fix this thing that like i'm pretty sure is already fucking broken well, obviously, this podcast, the the at least the title of it has become more relevant than ever. Uh, this is, in fact, movies versus capitalism uh, <laughs> being played out in the real world. And I'm sure we will be talking about this more and more as uh, these strikes develop over the next few weeks. But we should get to our conversation for today. Just want to let you all know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. Yes, we perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we are trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we don't sell ads on this show. Instead, we rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you will be directly supporting this show. You could also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast app. It takes two seconds, and it's super helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, and we really appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with our conversation about Dr. Strangelove with Matthew Cunningham Cook. All right. Joining us today is Matthew Cunningham Cook. Matthew is a reporter for The Lever and a fellow with Social Security Works. He focuses on aging, finance, and labor. And prior to joining The Lever in 2022, he spent six years as a researcher for labor unions. Matthew, welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. Pumped to be here. Matthew, I'm so excited that you're finally on. I think I might have told Rivka, I've said it to you before, Matthew is one of the smartest people I've ever met. He has a trove of knowledge that you're just like pulling out like obscure dates and facts like yeah, all no the pressure time. it's true we've been waiting yeah. oh thank you so i know i know you've read a ton of history you know a ton about like private equity and a lot of stuff like that but we haven't talked about movies a lot so like what was no. your what's your relationship with film i i as a kid was not like i would always get uncomfortable by a lot of movies definitely preferred tv over movies as okay. a kid. Yeah. But then in college I got I got pretty into like film studies and so whether it's like Godard. So are you guys going to do La Chinoise, by the way? Or any We will now. <laughs> yeah. We'll put yeah. it on the list. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess we have to now, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, most of the classics in college and I had a girlfriend at the time who was really into film studies too, and so watched a a bunch of it and then ended up writing a fair amount of it doing like film studies writing in Mm. in college too so yeah i mean i i i'm interested because i'm a a labor person definitely interested in like the political economy of hollywood and have done some kind of reading on that but yeah i mean compared to you two would say that i have it's not film is not one of my areas of expertise it's not (laughs) it's not something that i've read 
a ton about haven't even watched that many movies compared to the average American. But you know, I I think it's a very powerful medium. And I think what what you guys are, are doing here is really important. So Oh, thank you. I mean, I would never ever purport to be a film expert or or even a cinephile. Like uh-huh. I have I have huge huge holes in my film knowledge. Mm-hmm. But if you want to talk about Absolutely same, but I did mm-hmm. text Frank the other day and I was like, we are watching so many movies and learning so many facts so quickly uh-huh. that we have to find like a movie trivia night. And, okay. Yes. And <laughs> go take it by yes. storm. To which Frank yeah. responded, "Oh, do you mean for promotion?" And I was like, "No, Frank. I mean to win." Look, I'm in. The, I'm in that ABP mindset. Always yeah. be promoting. Always. Yes. Yeah. Very I was like to yes. make some money. Yeah. <laughs> so Matthew, you did in fact choose a classic for us to watch this week, and we all watched Doctor Strangelove, or How I yeah. Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Now, this was a 1964 movie directed by Stanley Kubrick, written by Stanley Kubrick, Terry Southern, and Peter George, starring Peter Sellers, George C. Scott, Sterling Hayden, Keenan Wynn, Slim Pickens, which, fun name, Tracy Reed. (laughs) And this film was made for about $1.8 The box office brought in $9.4 And it was nominated for four Academy Awards and won... Best picture. I think it won. No, all, it, or no, it, it didn't. It, it, yeah, it didn't win any of them. Didn't win any of them, but it was nominated <laughs> and it lost best picture, yeah. best director, best adapted screenplay and best actor for Peter Sellers. And so just for anyone who hasn't seen this or hasn't seen it in a while, short recap, this movie follows a group of bumbling politicians and military officials as they try to prevent a nuclear war after a crazy U.S. Air Force general orders an attack on the Soviet Union. A little bit of historical context for when this film came out. As Rivka said, it was released in 1964. This is one year after JFK's assassination. This is the middle of the Vietnam War, which began in 1955. It began in 1955. The first U.S. advisors, yeah, appeared in 55. But see, 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 we have our fact checker right here. This because I wrote that back down, and I was like, oh, the movie I believe appeared prior to the Tonkin incident like we were saying yes (laughs) but matthew did you know that at this specific moment in history there are over two hundred thousand u.s troops that are now involved in the vietnam war because that's what we have yeah because that's what we have written down okay Uh, (laughs) also the also this year the civil rights act of 1964 is signed into law by president lyndon johnson and also president johnson declares the war on poverty campaign martin luther king jr receives the nobel peace prize it is full-on Beatlemania, and they have 13 singles in the Billboard's Hot 100. And this is also this is also the birth year of Nicolas Cage and Jeff Bezos. Okay. Also, Pablo Picasso is still alive, which I is something that was that important. I... I just thought that was an important thing to put down. Well, you know, Guernica in this movie, there's there's overlap for sure. So, for, yeah. if I know um, that we, if I knew that we were trying to impress Matthew with facts, <laughs> just like historical facts. All right, so Matthew, the first thing we ask our guest is, why did you choose this movie for us to watch? Well, first, there is one, I was checking, because there is one one other piece of trivia here that I had no recollection of from when I first watched the movie, which is why this podcast is so important. It's like you're re-watching movies that you love. Had no recollection that James Earl Jones was in this movie. Yeah. Uh, Neither did I, yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah, that's right. and this was, this was his Hollywood debut, actually. He had never been in a Hollywood film before and then the other fascinating thing is that James Earl Jones's dad was 
was also in Hollywood, but was a was blacklisted oh, for for refusing to name names to HUAC, yes, and mm. to the House on American Activities Committee. And so, yeah, again, you know, some Damn. very interesting context to this film that this, you know, one of the most major anti-war films mm-hmm. is, has the debut of this actor whose father was was blacklisted by McCarthyism. So, holy shit! What was I? Did, what was James Earl Jones's father? What was his profession in Hollywood? Do you know? He was an actor. Yeah, he was and, an actor too. Damn. Yeah, he was in some films that I didn't. I'm not aware of. And then he, but he was actually in a Langston Hughes WPA play in 38 as well. And I'm sure wow. that's the beginning of his leftist affiliations. So damn. Very um, cool. All right, let's go. All right. So we got that. You're living up those... to your, <laughs> to <laughs> your reputation already. Yeah, <laughs> so now that we got that last bit of context in here. So Matthew, why, why choose Dr. Strangelove? Well, you, I mean, you had a list, you know, of films. And so this was, this was the one that grabbed at me. I, I mean, basically because I am so obsessed with, with this one historical figure who this movie is in part, I mean, two of the characters are based on, on General Curtis LeMay, who was mm-hmm. the, the chief of staff of the Air Force for several years in the 60s. And prior to that was a major Air Force general and was on the cover of Time and is somebody who I absolutely think everybody on the left should know more about. So we'll be getting, yeah, that's my teaser. We'll be getting okay. into that, you know? So, so yeah, that was the main reason why I chose it. In terms of the broader context of nuclear war, though, of course, you know, and how we prevent that because it'll kill us all. So, And what was your experience on, I'm guessing this was a rewatch for you, when, do you remember where you where where you were at the first time you came across this film and what your experience watching it in this context was? Yeah, I mean, I was never an Obama fan myself, never voted for him in either the primary or the general election. But the first time I watched it, it was in 09 or 10, right after he had won the Nobel Peace Prize. And so I thought that the movie was much funnier uh, than the first time I watched it. <laughs> Uh, this time around, it was much sadder in the context of this geopolitical conflict between Russia and the U.S. and this 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 heightened concern of nuclear war over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, it felt, and then obviously this conflict over Taiwan between the U.S. and China, it felt much more fraught, I guess, this time around than when I watched it the first time. Rivka, had you seen it before, or was this your first time? This was a first-time watch, and... I think the experience was similar, Matthew, to yours. That it was hard to find it very funny. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that there was moments. I mean, I appreciated. I think the writing and the acting, but like it was particularly at the end of the movie. For anyone who hasn't seen it, there's just like this epic montage of nuclear bombs going off, and it's really fucking scary. And they're playing. What is the song they're playing in juxtaposition to it? Some oh, romantic, a, yeah. It, the artist is named Vera Lynn. I forget yeah. the name of the so song. So it's a romantic, well. you know. But you're watching it just kind of like, and yeah, it was. It's one of my most primal fears. Has that has been like ever since I think, I think my dad exposed me early on to just learning about nuclear war, nuclear power, and those. The image of it never ceases to be absolutely terrifying. So, like on a very primal child. And human level, I just was like, it's a 
it's not funny. It's not funny. And like you said, in the context of what was it, the doomsday clock saying we're 90 seconds to midnight (laughs) because of everything that you just stated. It was just a little it's like jarring in a in a way that's important that makes it very re- relevant right now but the satire in it's satirical but it wasn't doing that like sometimes i think satire can distance you from a thing in a way that's not always helpful like ha ha ha, ha you know like yeah, we're sure like that ironic detachment we're, yeah we're detached we're and this was not detached and so yeah that was kind of that was very on the surface for me what about you frank I had seen this first in high school. I remember I had a very specific viewing experience. This is like right when me and my friends started like getting into film, into classic film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, probably like 14, 15, discovered Kubrick and was just like, whoa, my God. Yeah. This, <laughs> you know, saw, <laughs> saw Clockwork Orange, saw mm-hmm. Full Metal Jacket. And so we were like, I think just like kind of working through his catalog. And I remember we put on Dr. Strangelove and... It's also interesting, like, thinking about it in that context, like, about what we were learning in high school at the time about U.S. history and specifically about the Red Scare and McCarthyism. Because I think, like, the I think the narrative we get as American students in the public education system is basically like, you know, the Soviet Union was bad. It was. Uh, Mm -hmm. Communism is bad. Mm -hmm. But you know, we took the Red Scare a little bit too far, just a tiny bit. Like that's like that. That's the lesson that you are to take away from, I think, U.S. history in American high school is just like our concerns were valid, but maybe that that senator pushed it a little bit too far. Yeah. Um, So I remember watching it through that context and just like really gravitating to to more of like the the broad comedic elements of it, like Mm -hmm. Peter Sellers performance all of the ridiculous stuff that George C. Scott is doing, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. all of his yelling. And like at one point he's got such an amazing moment where he's like yelling at the president while walking backwards and just like falls and does a backward roll and stands oh, yeah. up again. Well, yeah. that was actually fun fact since we're, since we're throwing him out there and, you know, in case we all decide to go to one of these trivia nights, it was a mistake. He, it, that was not like a choice. He really oh, fell. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, happy accidents. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so I remember, but a Peter Sellers movie just wouldn't be a Peter Sellers movie without just some real good slapstick mm-hmm. in it. So mm-hmm. yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> so I remember like enjoying the comedic elements of it and understanding that it was about you know McCarthyism and the Red Scare, but not really, not really like resonating with it politically. And it was this time around, this watch, where I was like. Oh damn! This is really like a parable about how very, very few white men make all of the decisions that impact literally the entire world, <laughs> um, <laughs> which you could argue is still very, very much the case uh-huh. in 2023. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's penis wars, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, and that's like how the film starts off, which is great. It's just missiles that look like dicks. Yeah. <laughs> Next to like try a little tenderness. It's really yeah. it is good. Like that is yeah. what it is. If if you don't understand yeah. anything else, you're like it's penis wars. <laughs> I'm I'm curious for the the two of you. So like we basically have I don't know, like three or four settings that we're kind of bouncing through, bouncing between throughout the film. You've got uh everything that's happening at the Air Force base with Ripper and Mandrake. You've got everything happening in the war room with the president and then you got everything happening on the plane. Mm-hmm. Is there one, was there one section or one, or I guess even a character, something that like resonated, like especially hard with you this, this go around? Or was there something like of those three sections, which, which did you gravitate most towards? 
I mean, the title is so great mm. because the title character doesn't actually have that many lines, but is, I think, really reflective of kind of the whole truth that the film is trying to expose. So that's another thing, which is just that so much of the nuclear brinkmanship in between the U.S. and the Soviet Union yeah, there were all these like Nazis behind the scenes, literal Nazis who had been extracted from Germany in 45 through Operation Paperclip. And like they, these like Germans who like were like living in like Langley, Virginia and had like thick German accents were running around like pushing these like deranged like Southern West Point alums forming this Nazi Confederate access to like bomb the shit out of the Soviet Union and kill us all. <laughs> that that to me was like really, I yeah, I, again, the first time I watched it, I knew very little about Operation Paperclip. So this operation- Can you tell led, us a little bit more yeah, about yeah, it, Matthew? Yeah, please. Yeah, so Operation Paperclip was led by Alan Dulles, you know, who later basically founded the CIA and whose brother, John Foster Dulles, was the Secretary of State under Eisenhower and John Foster Dulles Airport is named after Alan Dulles' brother. And yeah, Alan Dulles spent World War II camped out in Switzerland, which like obviously was like a great place to meet Nazis and <laughs> tried to do like a, a side deal with an influential Nazi general prior to the fall of Berlin that fell through. He was he was lying, saying that he was a personal emissary of Roosevelt when really he was like a mid-level government functionary. But he and his brother were partners at Sullivan and Cromwell, major Wall Street law firm. Yeah, so... I mean, to be totally clear, the, the Soviet Union also had its own version of Operation Paperclip to recruit Nazi scientists. The thing that made the U.S. more expansive was that the Soviet Union was really only interested in the, the scientists, whereas the U.S. was interested in senior military and intelligence officers as well. You know, there was a much broader spectrum of people. And so... So we'll take all the Nazis. Is what yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, cool. the, the Nazis who went to the Soviet Union, they like basically got to make sure that their their family members who were in Soviet POW camps survived and got to live like decent lives in East Germany. The ones who went to the U.S. became like major figures in post-war American yeah. life. So with the the Ooh. biggest. The, the classical example of this is, is Werner von Braun, who basically founded NASA. Uh, Werner von Braun was the, the architect of the Nazis' rocketry uh, oh program. So, and they did, he oversaw horrific experiments on concentration camp prisoners, sending them up into rockets, basically without, you know, any protection and freezing people to death and boiling people alive effectively for the purposes of these rocketry uh, experiments. And yeah, he was recruited by the U.S. and, and founded NASA and basically... Wait, let's just one sec. Processing. Processing. Yeah. yeah. This is so Damn. fucked up. Wait, so yeah. am I correct in, in when I, I'm hearing you say that this... Sight, like horrific, evil, monstrous Nazi was invited over here. Yeah. To yeah. and like the justific was there even like an attempt at justification for that? 
Or was uh, it just like, I mean, we it don't was, have to? It was all hush-hush, basically. It was hush-hush until he like was like, yeah. and now I'm a famous head of yeah. NASA. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, I, I touched on this, some of this history in, a, in an article I wrote for The Lever a year ago about the, that was a review of this book called Nazi Billionaires by Daniel de Jong, this uh, Dutch, Dutch or Dana, I always confuse those two countries, I believe Dutch former journalist for Bloomberg. But yeah, the, the whole kind of, basically, as soon as, as soon as Truman got into office, the main anti-Nazi in the American government was Roosevelt's Treasury Secretary, Henry Morgenthau, who was Jewish. And he was the one basically fighting against these ghouls in the State Department. Who, So at the time, so famously, you know, when after September 11th happened, all of the Treasury Department's law enforcement powers, except for the IRS, was basically taken away from it. But before, for most of U.S. history, the Treasury Department has had like a massive law enforcement apparatus oh, attached wow. to it. And so a bunch of basically what the State Department and J. Edgar Hoover were refusing to do during World War II, which was to crack down on these Nazi fifth columnists inside the U.S., was being done through Morgenthau's Treasury Department. And he made some very powerful enemies, and he was, among other things, proposing a very vicious plan for post-war Germany, where he was basically saying any part of Germany that is worth anything should be put under control of the UN and then the rest of it should be turned into an agrarian society <laughs> without any chance of Jesus. rearming. And yeah, Truman got rid of him and replaced him with wasp kind of uh. ghouls who had no interest in, in punishing Nazi Germany. And that then enabled, yeah, the use of these, these rat lines where they extracted Nazis, not only to the US, but also to right-wing nations in, in Latin America as well. So Argentina famously. Holy shit. I mean, I knew there was a decent amount of Nazi collaboration post-war I didn't yeah. realize it was that extensive. That is wild. Because when I, because back to the movie real fast, because when Strange Love shows up like two thirds through the film, you're like, yeah. is this, are they doing a Nazi thing? And then I forgot, <laughs> I forgot that he actually starts saluting. It so calls like, the president mind fewer. Yes. It calls <laughs> the president mind fewer, pitches like a, uh, basically like a eugenics plan at the end of the movie. But I was like, damn, that's. I'm amazed that they got that in there. I'm amazing. Yeah, that, like, I mean, this is, the, I think, and none of this was, very, at this time, there was basically none of this was reported mm -hmm. about yeah. the extent of Operation Paperclip. And so basically, like, it's clear that Kubrick had some type of inside knowledge about uh, about kind of this Nazi axis inside of the U.S. and set out as a component of this film to to try and expose it. I, I, I really do kind of believe that, especially on... A second watch. Yeah, it is fascinating that this movie got made. I actually, <laughs> I don't know, Matthew. If you, I should have done a little bit more research into like its production and how we actually got it greenlit because this was this was still within the old Hollywood studio system. Like, you yeah. know, this is still the time of basically like singing in the rain, where everyone was just contracted to the big studios before like the the golden age of American cinema. And this is like a deeply, deeply subversive film. So yeah, I'm... so much so that it was called communist propaganda uh, by big sections of the media when it came out. Totally unsurprising. They also had to issue a disclaimer at the beginning, which still yeah. is part yeah. of the film, you know, I from know. the Air Force being like, yeah. hey, just so you know, this is not how the Air Force acts. Although that's a little which bit. Which as soon as there's a disclaimer, you're like, 
Well, now I'm thinking that maybe this is how the Air Force acts. So I feel like, <laughs> you know, with the disclaimer only adds to the like satire of it. I was like, is that that's now how I'm seeing the film. So I don't know if they did themselves any favor. What was do you know, Matthew, what the reception was like when it came out in terms of audiences? I mean, I know you said that it was received sort of like propaganda from a big portion of the media, but were people But it was also nominated for Oscars. So like Yeah. Clearly it had some some commercial success or some critical success. Yeah, I mean the 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 only thing that I think is interesting about its production is that there's another film that came out in sixty four, I believe as well, that called Seven Days in May that was about a right wing military coup in the US and the mm-hmm. Kennedy administration actually played a very active role in getting that film greenlit. And so that I that in terms of how this was greenlit, I do wonder if if the Kennedys played a role in that, considering that I mean we'll get into this a little bit more, but considering that he was constantly doing battle with with Curtis LeMay, who was pushing this let's let's first strike the Soviets at basically every turn, but you know, particularly okay. during well, the Well interesting Cuban because this crisis. was actually supposed to be released, I think, a year earlier. Or at least screened a year earlier, but they held back because of Kennedy's assassination. Interesting. So this is basically the story of one Air Force colonel, general, Ripper, who basically goes rogue and decides that he is going to start the nuclear war with the Soviet Union. He uses yeah. he uses an arcane attack plan within the catalog of all the different attack plans, like the one that allows a basically a general without the consent of the president to order a nuclear strike on his own. And it's it's pretty brilliant because at the beginning you you're you're unsure as to what like what is happening. You understand that tensions are escalating. You understand that some sort of big attack has just been called, but it's not until about a third through the movie that you realize that Ripper has just gone rogue. And and then you follow the president and yeah. the 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 Joint Chiefs of Staff in the war room as they are basically trying to like retroactively stop this attack. So Matthew, you you mentioned Curtis Lemay. What is his relationship with, or I guess, how is Ripper modeled after him? Or is it is, is it one of the other characters? Well, yeah, I mean, both Ripper and Turgidson have these connections. So, yeah, Curtis LeMay, Air Force General, he later became George Wallace's running mate in the 1968 presidential Very election. cool. Yeah, so running on this extreme right nativist platform. And um, yeah, Curtis LeMay was very vocal, publicly, privately, that the U.S.'s official policy that I believe started under Eisenhower, which was a no first strike, no first nuclear strike policy, that that was wrongheaded. And so I was just checking, there was a, a famous quote from him in 57, where he basically told somebody, I, I forget who, that he's like, yeah, th- this policy is bullshit, you know, and if I kind of decide that there's a threat to the U.S., you better believe I'm overriding this. And this is at a time that, you know, so there's this great New York article that I was rereading for this by Eric Schlosser, the, the guy who wrote Fast Food Nation. This was at a time when there were effectively no controls whatsoever over the nuclear weapons system in the U.S. So, you know, like they had this report of congressional investigators inspecting NATO nuclear weapons 
in Europe and there's people just walking in and out. At the time, the code, the nuclear launch code was zero, 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 zero. Fuck out of here. <laughs> My God. To be clear, the Air Force now denies this, but this has been widely reported for a while. I mean, I found out about that when I was like 15 or something. Well, when so. you forget your locker code, you said it yeah. zero, so. But then there's also, I mean, so LeMay's Bircher, so the John Birch Society, which played this major role in American politics from the 50s through the 80s, you know, less so today, but it's still active. LeMay's Bircher affiliation is less explicit than General Edwin Walker, who the film Seven Days in May, people say, is based on. But Edwin Walker, who I believe was an army general, was very explicitly, while he was in the, I mean, I believe JFK fired him because of his explicit Bircher affiliations and the john burr society was very ran like an anti-fluoridated water campaign as well so that's like another thing oh the wow film, the so that's an actual to, pulling yeah, towards it. Wow. yeah is that is that the birchers were ve- vehemently anti-fluoridation and very public about it and published books about it and so yeah that's the Another kind of thing the film talks basically is gesturing to that there was this Bircher mafia inside the upper echelons of the U.S. military that was in addition to being like just like totally crazy about like things like fluoridated water was also pushing for us to nuke the Soviet Union in a first strike attack. Damn. I'm actually going to play a little bit of Ripper's speech to Mandrake where he sort of is laying this all out in his decision for the first time because it kind of hits on everything that we're talking about right now. Do you recall what Clemenceau once said about war? Uh, no, I didn't think I do, sir. No. He said war was too important to be left to the generals. When he said that, 50 years ago, he might have been right. But today, war is too important to be left to politicians. They have neither the time, the training, or the inclination for strategic thought. I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. I, I love I love how Ripper is so obsessed with this like basically like fluid replacement theory mm-hmm. uh, because it just it really it's really emblematic of how I don't know like a single deranged person with a little too much power can just absolutely mm-hmm. just wield outsized influence on so many other on so many other people on so many other things that are happening yeah and that's not surprised to see someone that high up with that much responsibility and that much authority lose it like that like those mm-hmm. would be the people that you would imagine would lose it because like yeah. I, like i'm I, like i'm stressed out all the time and i don't have to fucking run the air force you know what i mean like and there's just not even a sense of like the the way it's played is perfect it's so i just got like my skin was just like crunching up because i'm like it's such a certain voice that is that like mm. old white authoritarian authoritarian like this mm. is it not a yeah. single question mark like period 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 i have mm-hmm. all the time in the world to tell you like and there's you like there's no changing that person's mind mm-hmm. and 
And it's also set up in like, I loved this scene. It's set up in, in such a great way because Mandrake has been locked in the room with Ripper. So mm-hmm. Mandrake's been like, tr- wants to get the code. It's like stuck. So, like, so in terms of comedy, it's like, it's beautifully set up. <laughs> and oh, yeah. like, yeah. This is, you know, and he's he doesn't just like having the chance to watch on his face the realization of like, oh, you're crazy. Yeah. Oh, you're <laughs> full on crazy. Like, <laughs> I mean, Peter Sellers is on another level in this movie. Oh, yeah. He is yeah. transcendent. In that scene specifically, Rivka, yeah, that moment when he realizes <laughs> that like he's fucked um, yeah. and his voice starts quivering and he's just like, he's, cause he's like going stern and then he, suddenly he's like, oh, please, sir. Like we have, we have, we have, we have to call this off. Um, yeah, and then his work, I mean, he plays three different characters. He plays Mandrake, he plays the president and he plays Strangelove. And I forgot just how funny he is especially as the president the president's conversation with dimitri the russian premier mm-hmm. are oh like so that, funny that could be in like a that could be in like a seth rogan comedy today and that would still be so funny yeah, yeah. just remember we're all in this together <laughs> <laughs> well how bad do you think i feel dimitri i mean the funny thing too is that I mean, you know, if you look at videos of Adlai Stevenson, who was the Kennedy's ambassador to the UN and a former governor of Illinois who ran against Eisenhower twice and who the, the president's care. I mean, brilliant character acting, too. He looks and mm. sounds exactly like Adlai Stevenson does. So <laughs> That scene a little bit reminded me the conversation with him on the phone with Dimitri. And just I think that the core of this satire of like the powers that be are in a race they can't stop because once your dicks are out, your dicks are out. Mm-hmm. And there was that we just we just did a Newsies, Matthew. So we were talking yeah. about there's that moment in Newsies where they're like, the the two that are in competition that you're like okay those are the they're those are the people going against each other and they're like wait call it off let's like go play poker and like actually like oh what do we have to do because we're, we're like now we're and they're all of a sudden like comrades and so this idea that the powers that have started this thing are kind of watching the monster go ahead and be mm-hmm. get out of hand and they can't do anything about it I think he's, he says like the arms race the space race and the peace race they're just all too too much too expensive and. Just the the dehumanization of like all of the the human beings like involved mm-hmm. like that are gonna be mm-hmm. dead. The human race is at stake, and it's just yeah. like, well, okay, fine. Yeah, <laughs> can we just politely talk this out? You know, yeah, is um <laughs> great. It's also amazing that it like contextualized that conflict while being like while being an american movie while being clearly so critical of the american military and the like mm-hmm. the american military apparatus cuz like there's no cutting it a different way like the the us is the one fucking everything up in this movie <laughs> you know like they are the instigators they are the one that are going to cause nuclear annihilation and it's like yeah. man it's it's wild like again going back to like what we learned in high school is we're the good guys and we're just trying to make sure that the bad guys don't get the bomb and like hurt mm-hmm. other people because we care so much about mm-hmm. everybody else. And mm-hmm. then if you are fortunate enough to like break free from that, that American educational hegemony, you realize that like, no, actually the U S throughout most of history, especially like this period of history is just basically like holding a gun to everybody's head mm-hmm. and uh-huh. just, and essentially being like, don't make me shoot this. Like yeah. that's, uh-huh. and then that's played out like so brilliantly in this movie. And how and it in- continues today. I mean, that pa- yeah. the yeah. idea that patriotism is you love 
you love the bomb you love war no matter what no questions asked and if we're going to war it's in your own best interest yeah and even if you don't understand it just believe us it is it's terrifying it's also interesting talking about this with um oppenheimer coming out later this year have either of you seen any trailers for oppenheimer christopher nolan's next movie i've heard heard things but i haven't seen the trailer it's about the Manhattan Project. It's yeah. about the the U.S. scientists racing to develop the the nuclear bomb. And there's a line, they just released a new trailer, there's a line in it that kind of like does the thing that we're talking about, which is someone says like, we have to hurry before the Nazis get the bomb. And so like mm. th- that, using that as the justification, and, and I mean, and granted, Nazi Germany, far, far, far worse than obviously a very serious threat but that's the justification that is used over and over again for for like these these arms races for developing these weapons it's just like well we better do this first before someone else does it to us yeah i mean that is yeah that touches though on something that i think that's really missing from the film again so yeah recently you know i i was like i've never actually i I mean i'm not one for looking at like grizzly photos but like I was like, I should really check out the the Hiroshima and Nagasaki mm. kind of photos, and they are just, ugh, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, gut wrenching and the extreme. I mean, they were pushing at the limits in so many ways, but that's basically what's missing from this film is that it mm. still kind of abstracts the, you know, beyond this, like we're all gonna die. It still ultimately abstracts the actual kind of impact, which is like sure. little kids with blisters all over their body like puking up blood and dying like that's yeah. that's the <laughs> effect which of, could have actually been put in you know if they to really push that last moment of yeah. that they could have put those images in and i think the film could have been yeah exactly like you're saying um, so much more effective yeah. yeah yeah especially juxtaposed with the final scene which is right. like a truly it's like a disturbing but it's so silly which is basically mm-hmm. like because this bomb is going to get dropped, it's going to set off the Soviets' doomsday machine, which is essentially going to destroy the entire world. Mm-hmm. So Strange Love suggests that, you know, they, they, they choose some people. We'll weigh a little bit in on the choosing process, but who gets to go underground and survive? And then also, like, what do they say? Like, there's going to be, there's got to be one man ten, for yeah, every 10 ten. women. Mm-hmm. And just, like, again, reinforces this idea that it's just, like, it's just a bunch of fucking dudes who are so insecure and are just trying to, mm-hmm. it's all about, like, accruing power and then being able to exert mm-hmm. that power, especially over women. Uh, just trying to book. Just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Did you two have anything else you wanted to hit before we go to the awards? Unless you have more, like, devastating facts for us Matthew or like I'm pretty pretty on the floor from these reveals today no one's gonna enjoy like a dinner party with me this week I'll tell you that <laughs> no yeah I think I yeah I mean I think I covered the there's lots of folks stuff for folks to google after this for sure. fabulous in that case it's time to hand out the awards for this episode so Matthew we like to give an award to different characters our first award is called a point with a view and this award goes to the character with the best politics in the movie so who do you think that might be who's getting the golden statue for this one this is a tough one this is a a, a film filled with people with horrendous politics i know i immediately tossed i was like and you will be having the honor of awarding this that's a very tough one oh i think i have it okay this is maybe a, a a cheat but the secretary she doesn't really know oh. what's going on. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, I mean, she's certainly the least stained by... <laughs> and the one woman in the film? Yeah, the one yeah, woman. The one, well, yeah, I think the one woman. Who he honors her, I think, on the phone. I liked this line. He honored her by saying, you know, you are... Because she's like, come... She's waiting for him in bed to come back. And he goes to the war room. And then she's like, on the phone. And he's like, you are a human being. Okay, I'm going to marry you. Like, that's... He's like, I'll marry you. Like, that's the, the mark. The mark of that he sees her as a full human is he will bestow upon her marriage. Also, Tracy Reed, who played Miss Scott, the secretary, was so good. That mm-hmm. that uh-huh. scene where she's re- basically relaying the entire phone conversation to yes. Turgeson, uh-huh. she's so funny. Her delivery yeah. is like so understated and uh, (laughs) it really it really feels like someone having to to fucking like play telephone for two like idiot men yeah i'll give it to to miss scott as well all right matthew our next award is called despicable you this goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie also a tough choice you have so many so many contenders yep yeah i i would say ripper you know i mean that so that is the (laughs) other thing that i would just touch on is that you know so there's this famous documentary that's insufficiently in some ways but in my view overly critical in other ways of robert mcnamara the secretary of defense during vietnam obviously a terrible human being in every single way i i think that kind of one thing that like doing research on kind of nuclear war and the risk of nuclear annihilation has altered for me is that is like reframing figures like like mcnamara and like in a later stage condoleezza rice as well it's like, yeah, they were very bad, but there were people like actively pushing inside the administration, like destroying all life on on Earth, you know. Mm. So in 07, Cheney and the neocons were pushing for a full-on invasion of Iran. This was like well documented by several different investigative articles. Rice was like the main person in the administration that was like, maybe a third war. It's not the best idea. And so that's, I mean, I think that's kind of another thing that's just interesting is that we know a fair amount, you know, if you're into foreign policy history, you know a fair amount about McNamara, you know, very little about about LeMay, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think that's that's unfortunate Mm -hmm. because yeah, yeah, McNamara is a bad dude, but LeMay was indescribably worse (laughs) in every sense of the word. All right. So that's why Ripper, I think, gets Ripper, the award because right. he's the one who actually pulls the trigger. You know? Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. I'm giving it to Doctor Strangelove because okay. you got me real heated about Nazis. <laughs> okay, <laughs> just like right now, I just yeah. Yeah, I'd also give it to Doctor Strangelove just for the sheer reason of being a Nazi, just being yeah. the, the uh-huh. <laughs> and, yeah, and gra- like the Good anti-communist, yeah. yeah, the the violent anti-communist, very close second, but yeah, the Nazi, yeah. he's gonna take it this one. <laughs> yeah. And our last award goes to a star who is scorned the sporting character in this movie that this movie should actually be about or that you would want to see a movie about oh i've got a good one for this so there's a detail in in the plane flying over russia when they get their survival kits they're doing the inventory of their survival kits and at the end they say they have uh, nylons and lipstick which suggests that after these guys drop the bomb they're gonna have to go into disguise as women so, which is just like a great small detail. So yeah, I would want to see. I mean, I know there. I know the entire planet is destroyed, but like, I, I would want to see the 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 story of like these Americans, uh-huh. like these American soldiers in the Soviet Union, uh-huh. in drag, yeah. and then 
and then they learn that this. But in a way that is also not transphobic because we know so much. Yes, those storylines often end up pushing transphobic narratives. Absolutely, absolutely. But I'd, more so, I'm thinking more of... I actually, I haven't seen Some Like It Hot in a long time. Neither have Some I. Like It Hot Did has a lot of... That's the only reason I say it, because that you that's a favorite film mm-hmm. of mine. And recently, I've been awakened to that discourse and recognizing that it's actually gotcha. like such harmful transphobic narratives, which I think actually they it's on Broadway currently, and they were playing with... I haven't seen it, but they've been trying to play with how can oh, they adjust ah. or how can they tell that story in a way that is not harmful. Interesting. Gotcha. Yeah, I was not aware of that. Yeah, but it's interesting because you, that you bring that up. It is. It was like a very '60s like thing. I mean, it's a very it's it's a, it's a timeless trope. I mean, fucking like half of Shakespeare's plays are about right. uh, exactly. you know yeah. like women dressing up as men, men dressing up as women. Right. Um, but particularly, I think just so I don't half say this idea, but like what I've learned is that because so much of it suggests that you know that there's some there's like a harm or a danger often to men disguising themselves as women and it kind of perpetuates that narrative which is very much part of that like american 60s military sure. like thing but i believe we can make the the that film in a yeah. fun way yeah i yeah i want to see them in the soviet <laughs> union learning that like if they are like at all sexist at all that that they're like they're wrong <laughs> yeah. for being sexist and if they are anti-communist they learn that that like actually yes. soviet union soviet union not so bad that's yeah that's actually a that's, great that would be a great film mm-hmm. yeah um, which, about- which did actually happen in in the Korean War, famously, is that there were a bunch of, there were like a dozen or so American POWs who refused to come back to the U.S. Uh, wow. So, really? Yes. Yes. Are there uh, films about that? No, I don't. I don't believe so. It would be a great film, but yeah, like a dozen wow. a dozen POWs in Korea an were like film. We're like yeah. we are choosing to stay in this country, <laughs> never seeing our families again, <laughs> and like. Right. And of life, course, the narrative you know. is like they were brainwashed. Yeah, that was, mm-hmm. and that was, and that's that's actually how the genesis of the Manchurian Candidate, yes, was what were those those POWs. That's how, yeah, that's the story behind that film. Yeah. Do you, either of you have a character that you would want to see a movie about from Doctor Strange Love? I like your idea, Frank. I like your idea too. No, that's a good yeah. one. I was kind of by the end, to be honest, I was like pretty annoyed with everyone, and I was like, I was like, Fair we enough. had fun, but I don't want to watch you on the screen anymore. But your idea is great. That's a great storyline. Yeah. Or them in Vegas because they were like, this would be a great setup to have in Vegas. I think was one of the lines. Yeah. Yeah. Or more of um, the secretary character and just like, yeah. what is she? Yeah. Sure. Maybe what is she doing the whole time they're in the war room? Like just yeah. cut to like, what is she yeah. doing during that whole yeah. time? Yeah. All right, well, that is it for the awards. For our listeners, if you have any ideas for new awards, you can email us at moviesvscapitalism at gmail.com. So, Matthew, before we wrap up, we like to discuss with our guest how we try to uh, practice our anti-capitalist values in our own lives, even with all of its complexities and contradictions. So is there one thing you do in your life or a practice that you engage in that you would like to share with us? Yeah, well, I mean, there's like, yeah, like, I mean, I still do like help out with like a like a, a nurses union in, in Rochester, New York. And so that's, that's like fun. Yeah, battling the boss in that sense. But, um, you know, I, the other thing, though, is like, I, I know, it's super cliche, but like, I've had just like, a, I'm not going to get into it. But I've had a fair amount of tragedy the last few years, you know, and like self care, you know, is mm-hmm. like, really good would you mind sharing what self-care yeah for you looks like? yeah about yeah six months ago i started a daily yoga practice mm. that was that was the 
That was the big one. Yeah, that's that's been a real game changer in terms of my mental health for sure. <laughs> well, I think you're right. It's it's maybe it's cliche, but it's so crucial because not only is it like taking time for yourself and doing something for mental health, it's also the idea to take an hour or however long it is out of a day daily yeah. in a world that consistently makes us feel like you Number one, you should be producing and making money and being a productive human being. Yeah. I don't know. I, I still struggle with that of like, every day I can take time for me. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I remember learning that like, we're not supposed to work longer than three or four hours at a time that we're like evolved to like, <laughs> yeah. like do like three or four hours of work, then take a nap. Then yeah. you do like another three or four hours or something, then you get to take another nap. Yeah. And you're you're right, Rivka. The, the the system that we live in builds in no time for self care or for mm -hmm. for breaks really, or just being able to take care of yourself. I mean, if you're working a nine to five and you got to commute, you get what three hours at the end of the day. So yeah, yeah. I know it can be tough, but it's it's very crucial. Matthew, where can our audience find you and your work? The lever. So yes, <laughs> Matthew Cunningham Cook, the lever. Uh, yeah, and then yep. So yeah, read the lever, and you'll see right. see my stuff. Awesome. Well, this was so great. Thank you so much for yeah. making the time. I know that you're very busy, so we really appreciate it. Oh, um, thank you guys, <laughs> and learned a shit ton. So thanks. Yes. For, for joining thank us. So much you. fun. Yes. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you've been enjoying this show, please consider becoming a supporter. You can find all of that info at mbcpod.com. For next week's movie, we'll be watching one of Paul Verhoeven's greats, RoboCop. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye.